More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. Mitchell Stores, putting people first and the science of hugging. Jack Mitchell, along with his brother Bill, grew their parents' specialty clothing store, Mitchell Stores, into a model for international, multi-generational family business success. Not only do Mitchell's employees know their customers' names, but they also know their birthdays, hobbies, and sometimes even the names of their pets. An excursion to Mitchell Stores, now in its third generation of family management, is defined by interaction rather than transaction. The metaphorical hug, an apt descriptor for Mitchell's people-first philosophy, which applies to both customers and employees, has become both a movement and a mantra thanks to Jack Mitchell's work as an author and lecturer. His best-selling books espouse the value of showing gratitude to customers and employees. We had the opportunity to sit down with Jack Mitchell to discuss the family retailer's origins, the practicalities of hugging customers, and what it means to extend that hug to employees even in the face of retail disruption. Enjoy this episode with Jack Mitchell. I think Mitchell's deserves a bit of a storyline first, like maybe to tell us a little bit more about <laughs> how, the, how the business came about in your own words. That would just be a wonderful start, I think, to this conversation. I'd be delighted to share with you and all of you how our family business started. It started over 60 years ago. My dad was a commuter, which means he was living here in Westport, Connecticut, and working in New York City back and forth for 25 years. And he was never really fulfilled as an entrepreneur that he was. And one day he just decided with my mother's help to cop off that train and start a small men's and boys store, you know, 800 square feet, 80 square meters. And, and it was three suits and, and a coffee pot that mom brought from home and a dream. And the dream was to be the very best men's and boys specialty store in Westport, Connecticut. Fast forward those 60 years, my brother Bill came in the business in 1965. Soon thereafter, I came in in 1969 to go from the boys' business to the women's business. So, so we have women's. We all know women spend more than men. or <laughs> They influence a lot of their men yeah. and their families about what they buy in terms of clothing. And from the very beginning, though, it was not about the product, although we always prided ourselves in having the world's best products within our store. But we listened to our customers, and as the world changed, we changed also in terms of our product, but it was about giving personalized customer service. It's, is it John or Jack? Is it, you know, do they like to travel or don't they like to travel? Do they go to the Middle East? Do they go to the China? So mm-hmm. we learn from our customers and then what do they wear? What do they like? And then how can we fulfill their dreams? We grew very rapidly because Westport, Connecticut grew as a, we're so close to New York City and our store grew, as I said, that 800 square feet, Today is 27,000 square feet, 2,700 square feet, men's, women's, and jewelry. We're also, we carry very precious jewelry in our business, and it's a, it's, it's a good percentage of our business. So we, that's in Westport, Connecticut. Again, my brother Bill and I 
We also really realized that we needed help. We'll get into that later in terms of our relationship and how did we build a family business. By the time my brother Bill and I both came in, by the time I came in, a few years later, if you remember, they were my mom and dad were 55 years old. They were really ready to retire or give the business away or whatever, and they they very generously gave us the business, the equity, the stock in the business, and we gave them a contract, a handshake for life to take care of them, which we did out of the family business because they both worked until till my mom was 86. My dad was 98 when he passed away. He mm-hmm. was still coming in the store and making, he was obviously the senior person within our business for a long time. But we took the business, my brother Bill, and we hired a very important person, David Bork, who was our family business consultant in 1985. I know him very well, actually, David. He's a lovely person. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a real turning point for us because after we, we spent a couple of years, just my brother Bill and I talking with David, and he outlined for us, because he works with family businesses, as you know, throughout the world, he was just starting his practice in really 84, 85. Mm-hmm. And we, we became one of his, um, we, we listened to him and mm-hmm. we listened to him. And what, what we did was we resolved our issues um, we of the of the roles we play. We have my brother Bill and I look alike. We talk alike, but we have very different skill sets. Oh. My brother Bill is the one that really is on the selling floor. I'm on the selling floor too, but Bill is the heart and soul of the business, mm. and he knows everybody, and they all know him. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm more the business side, and so forth. So we 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 sorted our roles out, and then we also agreed that we needed a family advisory board, but mm. it needed five or six outside family business people. So David was the first chairman of the board just to get us started of how we have we've we've met four times a year quarterly since 1986 or 1987. We have a board now that consists of six outside advisors, non-family, and then anyone that's a Mitchell in the family business. And as you know, but I'll just share with everyone, my brother Bill and I have we're blessed with four sons. My brother has three mm-hmm. and six of those seven are actively working in the family business. We had seven out of seven. Mm-hmm. One, one of our sons, Todd, who started our jewelry business, he left the business for personal reasons, but he's still a stockholder because my brother Bill and I, like our parents gifted us the business. We have, my brother Bill and I have gifted the equity in the business and the real estate. When our son started to come in the business, my brother's three and, uh, and our four, in 1990, uh, we had a we had a plan that we, as long as we lived, and we, my brother and I have, are still very healthy for our age, we gifted the equity in the business to our sons, and we shifted assets so that my brother Bill and I are not destitute. So mm-hmm. they they own the business and the real estate. So we have nine stores. It's a family business. We're all about family values that we've put into the business. We have a mission that we are is making people feel great. And the vision is to be the best specialty stores on the planet. What a great story. There's just such an interesting difference between, you know, how you and Bill came into the business, you know, taking over from your parents yes. and, and taking care of them. Um, huge difference to you having seven family members, seven sons basically in the, in the third generation in terms of how they came on board. I'm just curious to understand the differences between like, you know, 
Because usually when a second generation takes over, I'm a second generation myself with my two sisters. It's not really, we don't really talk much about a recruitment decision, right? Like it's more of a, you know, we're all, we all pull together, you're a close family, sort of like everyone takes care of each other. Like, and if you're in any way, shape or form inclined towards the business, like you take over and you, and you do your part, right? Whereas the third generation, of course, because they're more numerous, they have more of a career decision in relation to the family business. So I was just wondering how you, uh, how you all sort of uh, lived through that. Like, was it like a, did you recruit the next generation or did they volunteer in or did they have to go through the same kind of procedures as any other employee? How did you manage that? Obviously, I think we managed it um, successfully because they're in the business. <laughs> Start with that. And again, again, David Bork helped us with that. I know that I always wanted, and so did my brother when we really dug into it, we, we made a very simple decision, which a lot of family businesses overlook. We had to decide, do we want to go to the third generation or do we not want to go to the third generation? Mm -hmm. And it was never in doubt that we wanted to. So that was always there that we wanted to. Now, growing up, again, the business was growing rapidly, at least I'll speak from my side of the family. I mean, I would come home happy and really excited about what was going on. And so did my wife. Now, remember, she had her own family business, too, so that it came. We, we were happy in what we were doing. And we obviously had some wealth that we were accumulating and our sons could see that they could enjoy what was going on. And then David put into we put into place two rules. I don't like rules. I'm a we're, we're a, a, you know, a values side. But the two rules that for the possible entry into the business, they had to work somewhere else five years after they graduated from college, five years, didn't matter whom they work with. And the second rule was we would never fire or replace a non-family member with a family member. Mm -hmm. And we say that out loud, that everybody that works with us, now we have 405 people that work with us mm -hmm. in our stores. They all know that. Mm -hmm. They're not going to get any equity in the business, the non-family people, but we pay them well and we, we, we treat them like family. One of the simple secrets is that everybody has different skill sets. Mm -hmm. As the seven sons came in on the third generation, they all had different responsibilities. It's so interesting because you're like, so the combination of being a family business, but also being in this, in this retail sector, right? Like, which to be fair is like probably one of the most disrupted industries that we've like, you know, over the last few years because of digitalization, et cetera. And like you obviously like have embraced that already fully been very successful i think with your e-commerce side as well yes but, we have been but it has it has such ramifications on what talent management looks like right like because today i'm supposing here i don't know correct me if i'm wrong jack please but i'm i'm, I'm supposing that mitchell's needs to hire very different kinds of people very different kinds of talent uh to you know to grow uh, than it did before. So I was just wondering what that looks like for you guys and what kind of adjustments did you have to make to the fact that, you know, your industry is being disrupted beyond your control and how did you respond as a family, but also in terms of how did that reflect on non-family hiring? Yes and no. I mean, yes, we had to hire different skill sets and backgrounds of people in order to, to for, just let's take the data side. I mean, Russell, because of his background, He's the oldest son. And then Todd came in, the one that was there for quite some time and started our jewelry business as well. He worked for Apple. The Todd worked for Apple. Russ worked for IBM. And Todd, you know, he was doing software business in, in, in um, Silicon Valley for five years when he was first married. So 
they put together our whole CRM system mm -hmm. and we didn't buy it. We made it. We've customized it for us. Mm -hmm. and, and even when we went online, everybody said we went online. So we only went online three or four years ago. Maybe it's longer now, but not, we weren't there in the beginning. We mm -hmm. almost went on when the, when the dot commerce came in, in 2002, 2003, we would have lost millions of dollars if we had done that. Mm -hmm. So we were a little late to the game, but now we found a, a, a software company in New York City that for three, two, two years, we worked the, that out and integrated it with our CRM system. Then they knew it was only a full-time, part-time thing. And then we hired three. Now we have four people that work on our, our um, MPEX business, our online business. Plus, we just hired a data scientist who's unbelievable. Mm. She has her backgrounds from the military. So all the data that we have, every single sale, every single customer by SKU, SKU, Stock Keeping Unit, all the data we have on our customers, all the data. So we're not like Facebook. We, everything, else, everything is confidential. You know, right. We don't share or sell any of our data to anyone. However, we use the data not only to know the score, but also to, um, to remain personal. Mm -hmm. The hiring practices for our family was they now have to, now we're, maybe we're moving into the fourth generation. Mm -hmm. We have seven adult grandchildren mm -hmm. <laughs> from 20 to 24. We have seven mm -hmm. of them. And my, I just I happen to be the older brother and I got married earlier. So my brother Bill has seven lovely grandchildren also. They're just younger. So again, we have a family council also. Family council meets regularly three to four times a year. We have these open communication with a family council. We have an outside advisory board that meets quarterly. We on compensation, we're a, which is a, one of the big things in family business. Obviously, we're a meritocracy, and we have a. There used to be the compensation committee was consisted of my brother and myself, and Russ and Bob, who were the co-CEOs. Now, Bill and I have stepped off that, and we have two of the non-family board mm -hmm. members. So, Jack, it's like it's so interesting, right? I want to explain here in, in this conversation, I think it's very important that we touch upon this. And not only did you guys manage to find a structure that works for you, but obviously, yes. like, you know, uh, then is a very balanced mix between family talent and non-family talent, which works really well together through structuring and strong communication. But what I love about your story is that you've done something that I think very few people or we've rarely seen it go into that direction. You've taken the things that you've learned from your family business and you're now teaching all of those big corporate names, <laughs> which I just love. You know what I mean? Like, I just love the fact that because you usually hear the opposite story, right? Like family businesses measuring themselves with big corporates and multinationals. And you did the opposite thing. So you took your family business uh, with your brother and then with your sons and it's very successful. And with your wife, I also want to mention her. I think it's important. So Thank um, you. She is. Uh, she, I'm sure she is. And so I think that what's interesting for us now is to understand this journey, how you extrapolated your own experience and, and poured that into uh, which you called yourself the hugging company. I'm going to just like quote you here, like oh, the hugging yes. company and started with the books and, and really looked outwards and inwards to the organization and have been extremely successful with that. Tell us a little bit more about that journey and when that started for you. Sure. What happened was I was asked to be not a keynote speaker, but a panelist at our CEO summit. I think it was in 2002 at the Boulders, a nice place to have a conference. And it was just the beginning of the dot-com era. I was a panelist. There were six of us. There was a keynote speaker Robin Lewis, who you may know his name, he does a does the Robin Report and so forth, and he's a good mm -hmm. friend now. 
he was the keynote speaker at 7.30 in the morning. And there were like 350, 400 CEOs, COOs in the, that represented most of the larger stores and medium-sized stores in this country uh, that were attending. And Robin jumped up and down and he said, unless you have a sexy website with all the you know bells and whistles, mm-hmm. in 10 years, your bricks and mortar store is going to be, won't survive. You mm-hmm. need to have a really great online presence because in 10 years or so, everyone's going to buy all merchandise on the internet. That we, he, that's how we presented it. Everybody cheered. They all seemed to agree. Then our panel came up and there were six of us, the first two woman and a gentleman, they were CEOs of good companies and they essentially said the same thing. We all had six or seven minutes to talk about our business. And I was number three and it's one of those stages you could walk down the stage right in the middle of everyone. And I walked down there and I said, you know, we're about something I haven't heard anybody talk about. We're all about customers. They're the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. We know their names, their birthdays, their anniversaries. We build personal relationships with our customers and we have fun doing it. Mm-hmm. And we do the same with our vendors. We know Jill Dozenian and, and Giorgio Canali and so forth. We, we, we get to know these people and our bankers. It's about knowing the personalization of the relationships. And I jumped up and down, said all that. And then I, you know, stopped. And at the end with the other people, and when we finished, I went down to a round table and um, the president of Burdolph Goodman, you can just say a, a great store in New York, was a good friend of mine. He put his finger in my face and he said, "The Jack, the next thing you're going to tell me is you and your employees actually hug your customers." Oh. And I said, <laughs> "I said, doesn't everybody?" At the minute I said that, I realized that not everybody does hug their customers. I thought, mm-hmm. I thought, I pictured my brother and I pictured Frank Alaji, who's retired now. He worked at Richards for over 50 years. I could see him hugging customers literally. And gee, my, my six or seven minutes, they liked. They asked me to be a keynote speaker at the next menswear one, like four months later. And I said to my son, Russell, the oldest one, who had helped me with my six minutes, I said, Russ, what am I going to talk about? He said, well, dad, you're going to talk about, you know, that hug your customer remark that Ron mentioned. Just build on that because that's what we do. So I did that. And that speech went over very well. So I then said to myself, but gee, maybe I was 64 years old. Then I said, maybe... Maybe I could, in 10 years, when I was thinking about either retiring or leaving or changing my role, I could be a speaker because I enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. So I called the Washington Speakers Bureau and they said, Jack, you need a book. I said, okay. And three weeks later, two or three weeks later, in came Jack Romanos, who was the CEO of Simon & Schuster, one of the best publishing. And he happened to be lived in Wilton, where we live, the same town. His daughter dated one of our sons. And I said, mm-hmm. I told him the story. I said, Jack, I need a book. He said, I'll give you an hour of my time. So now I was, you know, I'm slightly dyslexic. So I scribbled all my notes down. I picked up the phone. I made my appointment. I went in and in an hour presentation, they loved the idea. And then Fred Hills, who was the editor-in-chief, grabbed me aside. He said, Jack, you're not going to write this book yourself, are you? I said, no, I know I need help. He said, I'll find you somebody. And he found me a wonderful, um, I call him a collaborator. Some might call him a ghostwriter, but I gave him all of this much acknowledgments. His name is Sonny Kleinfeld. He just retired from the New York Times 40 years. He has two Pulitzers in his bag of tricks. And, and, and he, he captured my voice. And so I tell the stories, and then he helped me put the book together. And, you know, the book became a bestseller. So what do you say 
about like, you know, what do you say to people who take this sort of like stance and saying like, you know, well, who take this attitude and who talk about like, you know, technology as being something that can uh, actually like eliminate certain, certain jobs and, and stuff like that. And it should, what is your sort of like attitude towards that? And how does it feed into, you know, what your principles were when you were writing the books? I think technology, we believe in technology. We, we, we embrace technology, but we embrace it within our, our value structure and our, our mission and our, and our, our vision of who we want to be. I mean, we definitely, mm. we definitely know that there's a big thing out there called the internet. And I mean, obviously we have a store in Seattle. You can imagine the customers that we have with Microsoft and, yeah. and, 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 yeah. and Amazon there. So we feel that we can continue to have a bricks and mortar channel distribution be the primary one for, for, and bricks and mortar do exist. However, our online business, it isn't only, but it's primarily set up to enhance the shopping experience of our, our current customers. Because mm-hmm. our current customers are buying online and they're buying in the store. So we have things like, I mean, Nordstrom's just started this, but we've, we've done it since we began, reserve in store. Is he a pair of Manola Blahnik shoes and you're a size seven and a half and we don't have it, but we have it. You can see it right picture of it in San Francisco mm-hmm. or in, in Seattle. We have it there. So mm-hmm. we just say we ship it into you. You don't have to buy it. If you want to buy it, fine. Mm-hmm. But bring it into the store. And let's say you're living in Westport. So you bring it into the Westport. You know, we'll bring it in for you next Tuesday. We'll have it for you. And you either like it if you want it, buy it. Or maybe it doesn't fit. You know, it does mm-hmm. right, or so you don't have to return it, and all the nonsense that goes on with that. So we're, we're, but we are finding customers that are buying, you know, eighty percent online. It's mm-hmm. and the, the business is only is growing rapidly, certainly percentage wise, mm-hmm. enormously. But it's not. It's still, you know, again, I I won't give. I'll give you the number, but I probably will take it out. You know, only four or five percent of our business. But that's quite a normal. That's quite a normal quota at the moment, isn't it? Because uh, overall, I think retail, the retail online retail purchase is still at about fifteen percent of overall purchase yet. So it's basically pretty much aligned with what we see out yeah, there, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, probably right. Yep. And I mean, we have found out with our data being so sophisticated in the data side, without sounding presumptuous, you know, it's more profitable with the bricks and mortar than it is online. Jack, I think we could go on for hours. <laughs> I'm going to cut it out there. Honestly, and I hope this is not the last conversation we have because I just love this so much what you're saying. And I think it's such important and you're right, especially in the current uh, ambient that we're experiencing worldwide, by the way. So you're also suffering from the same thing. I think these messages are very important. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify be notified of our weekly episodes.